It's a circus. It's a circus theme. Circus theme, exactly. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William and Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. How are you today? Hello, Professor Kaplow. How are you? I should mention that today. Uh, the day that we're recording this is February. No, February is a month. The day is February 23rd. And it is like 85 degrees outside or something uh, horrendous. It's it's very bizarre to be in February. And it feels like summer. And like, I don't know what to do. Like, I went outside to, to do a little bit of work uh, out in the back. And I was like sweating profusely within like 10 minutes. My dog is like, un, un, you know, very confused as to what like the temperature is, what it's supposed to be. Uh, it's very it's very odd to have it this this warm in February, I would say. Yeah, I, I had to like dig up clothes for my kids that had been yeah exactly shifted out of the normal rotation. So I had to find where we put the shorts uh, for for the kids, and that was. Do you have the um, the air conditioning on in your house? I don't currently have the air conditioning on, but I probably should flick the switch. We, we're, I think we might hit that today because it is uh, steaming up. Yeah. Well. Um, Marcus, we have a lot to, to talk about today. I think it's going to be a, a good... A smorgasbord of topics. Yeah, I mean, we missed we missed a week. We were off last week. Um, and uh, so we let a lot of these issues simmer. And I wanted to start off today with a little bit of follow-up. Um, so as you know, a long-running thread in this podcast is my refusal to put the podcast on Spotify, despite the, the, the sincere wishes of our seven listeners you have been very adamant in that holding that position. Your I had a principled, I had a, strong. Yeah, I had a principled stand against Spotify, and I also um, enjoyed the fact that no one could stumble upon, upon the stupid things that I was saying on the internet. Right, that you kind of had to know, yeah. you had to know to know, right, in a kind of speakeasy sort of way. Or yeah, word of mouth. Like somebody had to tell you about this very cool podcast they were just listening to, and it's like secret. You it know, makes the whole thing really better. It. It, it really yeah. does, right? But right. I've okay, been so convinced. That, that then leads to the question, then. Yeah. So why did you change your mind? Uh, I was convinced by the prospect of ad sales. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the the reason I I changed my mind. The so prospect. the big announcement today is that this podcast, Cheap Talk, which you know and love is now available on a podcast app near you without going through um, the kind of convoluted process that we used to have to, you have to go through to add it and subscribe with a, an RSS feed. You don't have to do any of that. You just have to search for Cheap Talk and probably one of our names because it's a fairly common um, <laughs> fairly common podcast name. But uh, maybe if we get enough reviews on Apple Podcasts, it will come to the top of the list. And so the people that search for Chief Talk will be able to find us. But you can uh, listen to us on Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us on Spotify. You can listen to us on uh, Overcast, which is my podcast player of choice on the iPhone. Pocket Casts, Castro. I'm now just making up names of podcast players. <laughs> Google Podcasts. You can listen to us on any of that stuff just by searching uh, for our names. So we're now in the directory. And the reason I decided to make this change, and I, you know, uh, Marcus, I know you've supported going more public. Oh, I, I, yeah, I'm a big supporter of Spotify. I like what they do. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the reason I, <laughs> I, I just was, it was becoming difficult for people to recommend our podcast to other people, mm. right? Like it's, it's, you don't want to have to go to this website to click on the thing to listen to the podcast. And so when folks would say, oh, I tried to tell my 
my parents to listen, but like this whole thing is too complicated for them. So now they can just go to where they normally listen to podcasts and type in the name. And so I hope that that, um, uh, is good for everyone. And, you know, Squarespace, if you're listening, you know, we're, uh, we're open to, to ad sales now as well. So ciao. I think that's a good one. I think MailChimp, a longtime supporter of podcasts. Yeah. MailChimp is excellent. I, 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 frankly, I would love to uh, do HelloFresh and you and I could, could cook together. We could have like a live stream, uh, op- the unboxing of a HelloFresh. I mean, NordVPN, they're, they're a big sponsor for many uh, <laughs> online YouTube channels. And so I think any number of different uh, organizations, you know, hit us up audible.com. A babble, if you want to learn a foreign language. I got plenty of ideas for potential sponsors. Let's, you know, so let's, let's have some conversations. Yeah, I think, I think it's time to have, to have that conversation. And, you know, I think uh, the next step probably should be merchandise, of course. So. Absolutely. Um, I, the number of, of listeners who have written to me asking, when can I get my trucker hat, my, my hoodie? You know, I, I, and it's, it's, it's very depressing to have to tell them we don't have merch. So I think that we're going to have to rectify that situation very soon. Yeah, send us your your um, design ideas uh, or your what you want. No, because then we have to pay. No, no, no. We need to do this ourselves. We do. All right. Well, then send us what you want to see. Are you are you more like mug people or are you more uh, like? <laughs> I, I, I say we do all of it. All of it. I say we do all, and we need to do it soon so that we're in for the holiday season. You know, I, I understand it's February. It's going to be here before you know it. So we should we should get our designs. We should get cooking and, and have a lot of stocking stuffers around. You know, November December time frame. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I am excited that we're that we're now publicly available. The other big follow up that everybody is I know wants to talk about is last time we talked about some um, gifts for Valentine's Day. And I mentioned that we both have books that make wonderful gifts for loved ones. Valentine's Day or really any day of the year. And you commented on how expensive my book signing away. Horrendously expensive. And I wanted to just follow up on that because I saw that due to public pressure demand, Amazon has marked down my book. I'm sure this is not because they're having trouble selling it. I was going to say, you use, you use the demand. That was a very interesting word choice. Yeah. Due to lack I mean, of I'm demand, not an economist, but my understanding is that sometimes supply and demand have this relationship. And so, you know. Look, the book is on sale, friends. That's what I'm trying to say. So right. get it while you can. It's now down uh, to the bargain price as I look here. Of ninety two dollars and forty cents. So down that's not from, bad. No, down from one hundred and ten. It's a that's big pretty deal. good. I, I can't wait to see what it's going to be next week. I mean, this is this is fascinating. Right? This is this is great. I also love on Amazon. By the way, they 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 try to get you. They're like, oh, there's only seven left in stock. That's right. You yeah. oh, you, you don't want to miss out on signing away the bomb. Better order now. Not just get one. You might as well get two while you're at it because it might we might sell out. It's been stuck at seven left in stock for the last two months, which may suggest no one has bought the book in the last. In the last they they bought seven copies from the publisher, and those seven it's still remain still there, still in Amazon's Amazon. warehouse, waiting to That's find right. a home. That's right. Somebody will buy those seven. Right. Somebody will buy those. Seven. Somebody should buy those. So um, now is the time. Now is the time to to jump on this um, um, and uh, get the book while it's on sale. On a serious note, on a serious note, I will say, uh, as somebody who has read. Some of the book, I think uh, the NPT is having kind of a moment, it seems to me, as an as an outsider, uh, in the sense that every day 
it seems like in my in my sort of Google alerts for articles and stuff like that, there's like NPT books being published, NPT, NPT articles. Like for whatever reason, there seems to be sort of like a zeitgeist. Although I'm not really sure I'm using that word correctly, but like a, a sort of cultural moment for the NPT. Do you do you feel that? Do you feel like you're part of something that's kind of like hip and happening right now, or or not really? Yeah, no, I mean, but I, I think that the thing about nuclear stuff is there's always something, right? There's always some crisis, and and so it's it's not it's not hard to to understand why this stuff is important, and 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 so yeah, I mean, people are talking about the NPT now, um, in the context of just reassuring the world about the spread of nuclear weapons in the face of Putin's nuclear threats in Ukraine, in the face of South Korea talking about nuclear pursuit in response to North Korea. And it's, it's, you know, it's in the news and people are talking about it. So I think, um, I think that's a reason to, yeah, buy the book, read about it and you can understand it better. Mm -hmm. I like it. Well, one of these days, one of these podcast episodes, we'll have to have you Tell us a little bit about the book, the argument in the book. Maybe we'll save that for a, a future Oh, yeah. Uh, podcast. I, I plan to milk this book thing for content. You know, yeah. pretty much we'll just like drip more content every every couple of weeks about the book. That's that's how. Uh, that's a good. That's, that's a good. These are teasers. Teasers, teasers. Right. Exactly. We don't want to give away the punchline such, nope. such that you don't have to buy the book and read it. It's it's like my favorite moment in watching uh, a show like Last of Us, for example, is not the actual episode. It's the like 30 seconds that they show you for like the next episode because it's just such a great – it's like it's such a teaser. And oftentimes, you know, they, they will do things to like lead you down a road that you think is, you know, is going to take you one place. And then when you actually watch, actually, ugh, watch the actual episode, you're like in a totally different kind of realm. Brilliant. I love it. I love it. Speaking of Last of Us, hmm? you, my friend, are due for some vindication here because a couple of episodes ago, we discussed whether or not – Last of Us is a zombies show. Is a zombie show? Absolutely not. And Absolutely you not. took this weird. You went out on this weird limb, saying these are not zombies because they have not died and <laughs> come back to life, and that that's seems fairly obvious to me. Yeah, yeah, that's an inherent part of what we mean when we say zombie. And I was like, it looks like a zombie show, feels like a zombie show, it's a zombie show. And uh, I will put in the show notes a piece in Variety. That talks about how the crew of The Last of Us and the cast and crew was banned from saying on the set the word zombie, that they were so adamant that this was not a zombie show that they would not allow anyone to talk about it as if it was a zombie show. And I feel like, you know, we should recognize when you get something right, Marcus. And this was you were on top of this from from the beginning. Kudos to that. It doesn't it doesn't happen every day that I get something right. And so I, I agree with you when it does happen, we should take time to celebrate. So. I am I am going to have a little celebration tonight uh, to mark the occasion. Thank you very much for pointing this out. We were right about other things, too. We actually, the, our balloon talk last time uh, really touched on a lot of things that have come to pass Other in the past. last couple of weeks. Um, yeah. So I think it is time for my favorite segment of the show, Balloon Corner. Few things have happened in... In Blue World since we last spoke. So one is that China, pretty soon after our podcast came out, uh, threatened to retaliate against the United States by shooting down U.S. balloons or any balloons that it sees, as we <laughs> absolutely predicted in the, in the last in the last podcast. Shoot, and, shoot first, ask questions later. Right. And, you know, so China immediately said, well, the U.S. has sent this many balloons over China in the last 10 years, which is 
of course, almost certainly false, right? Like right, this is yeah. not how, how the U.S. operates, but, you know, that's what China said. And it said it had identified a balloon like off the coast that it was going to shoot down. But then we haven't heard anything more about that. So this idea of kind of escalating the conflict of the um, standoff in a way that you get this kind of tit for tat, the U S shoots mm -hmm. something down. So China's going to shoot something down. That's uh, something that has kind of indeed come to pass and that we identified as potential area of some danger because the U S has manned, surveillance aircraft out there in international airspace right but mm -hmm. that something that china can kind of point to and and say oh they infringed on our airspace so we're going to do something about that um as a way of you know just showing the u.s that it can't get away with shooting down its spy balloons um without some kind of some kind of consequence so just wanted to point out that that tit-for-tat logic was was happening around us mm -hmm. the other thing that we've been seeing in the in the last couple of weeks are the U S just shooting down a bunch of stuff, right? We got, <laughs> or, well, it's, we we're identifying more UFOs out there, more right? Stuff, more, more things. Yeah. More things. And, and, um, there's stuff in, there's stuff flying around and we're just going to shoot it down. Even if it turns out to be like, you know, a local, uh, boy scout, like science project, right? Which one of these, right? Like, wasn't one of them like a toy? Right. Like, one of them, we <laughs> use like this missile was. that costs like hundreds of thousands of dollars to like, like shoot this, down some yeah, like, this, like drone, hobbyist like, club, like put up this right, balloon. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> got, got shot down by an Air Force jet. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty tough right now to be um, operating in the recreational balloon space, I think is, is, uh, it's, it's going to be rough. But it was, there was kind of some interesting comments from US officials about why we're seeing, this flurry of activity in terms of shooting down these unidentified um, aerial, what's it? it's a UAP is the acronym. Do you know that one? Unidentified aerial phenomena, right? To avoid making it seem like they're from outer space, right? Which there's definitely that UFO, that UFO connotation. Well, did you see they had to come out? So like the U.S. government had to come out in, in, in a press conference and say, like, I, I just want everybody to uh, be reassured these are not aliens. Like they, they, they had to come and like say, and obviously like I was tremendously disappointed. Like when this was all going down that like night, you know, where they were shooting these things down kind of left and right. I really thought like, okay, the day is, it's here, but we finally, you know, everybody knows there's aliens out there. The mathematicians have been arguing it's inevitable. Today's the day. And no, it's just a, a, a kid's balloon. They're not aliens. So U S officials have said that we're, we're seeing more of these items because they have made some changes to uh, radar screening. So the idea is that previously objects had to be traveling at a particular speed or a particular altitude for our radar to flag it. This was aimed at eliminating false positives caused by hobbyist balloons <laughs> and stuff like that that people are just kind of floating around but now in response to the spy balloon threat from china we have made some adjustments to our radar screens and we're now seeing more stuff right and now that we see the stuff we kind of have to shoot it down if we don't know what it is so we're seeing more and more of this and i think there will be a recalibration as we realize that maybe shooting down um school science project is, is not the best use of the u.s air force it did on a serious note. I mean, it is easy to sort of like mock the the shooting down of a kid's balloon, and we we probably should mock it. But I, I did find the whole thing a little strange, and that it's, it did seem a little sort of reactionary to, you know, the first the okay the first spy balloon fine, like you shoot that down, that makes sense to me. But then to like shoot down these other ones like in kind of quick succession before we kind of really knew exactly what what they were or what was going on. 
I don't know. It struck me as a little, um, uh, 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 what's the word, impromptu or, or like a little bit sort of like reactionary, I guess, like without like a lot of, of not to say they didn't think about what they were doing, of course, but just it seemed, it seemed a little rushed. I don't know. Did, did, did you get that impression at all? Or do you, did it seem completely normal that they would do this to you? Yeah, I'm just I'm worried that there's too much of a response to the political discussion around mm-hmm. around these things and not enough like thinking about what they're actually doing um, right. that there there's a probably an imperative for, you know, Biden faced a lot of criticism for allowing that first big Chinese spy balloon to transit the United States. And had the U.S. acted more quickly while it was sort of off the co off the West Coast, they wouldn't have to deal with this political fallout. And so maybe there's some impetus to act a little quick, act a little more quickly when they see these these mm-hmm. balloons and take take them out while they can and while it's easy to do without you know making them into a, a big story. So I think that's right. possible. Uh, but yeah, you would think that we would do a close up look at this thing before we decide and and judge that it's not a threat before we decide to shoot it down. But I don't know. The other argument that I saw that, that made sense of kind of explaining this was that for these these other two, um, you know, there was it was not like clear that they wouldn't pose a right. threat to like commercial aircraft. And so I guess if you're the Biden administration, you're, you're looking at it you're like if there's if there's any chance at all now that we can see these things on the radar that this could like, you know, uh, affect the passenger jet or something like that, that makes sense to, to shoot it down. So that sure. I guess it makes sense from that perspective as well. There's actually kind of a weird, uh, I shouldn't say weird, there's actually like a thread in political science literature on UFOs, right? Oh, yeah. Not weird at all. Do you want to uh, <laughs> tell no, us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, so there's, there's lots of different, um, this, not lots of, there, there's, a, there's a sort of cottage industry of people that have been talking about UFOs and or uh, aliens for for kind of a long time, actually, right? And one of the sort of initial like ways that this gets brought into political science is is Alex went um, in his 1992 article, in case what states make of it, kind of poses this like metaphor or this like thought experiment uh, where he says like if you have a first encounter with some like civilization that you know nothing about, right? So you can think about, you know, maybe in like the early days of of the the Earth, you know, peoples meeting each other for the first time. Uh, know nothing about one another. He kind of thinks about that in terms of like an alien civilization, you know, shows up on Earth. And the question is like, what would we, what would we think about this? What would we do? And his point is that um, absent any kind of, you know, pre uh, uh, action or any type of communication with these, these aliens, there's no reason to assume that they would have, you know, sort of any kind of hostile intent towards us, right? The aliens show up, we don't know what's, what's going on with them. The way you figure out what their intentions are is you you have some type of interaction with them. In other words, like intentions, therefore, are kind of socially constructed because they come out of this social process. Now, in the real world, and he, he points this out, aliens don't come with any sort of like, you know, blank slate. There's all this baggage, you know, kind of attached to them in, in movies and books and, and all that kind of stuff that would give us kind of beliefs about aliens. Uh, uh, so it wouldn't be like a really real first encounter, but the idea is, I think an interesting one, which is like, if they, if they did show up, you know, what will we make of them? Right. And the fact that the United States was shooting down unknown UFO aircraft, um, sort of implies that what we would do is we would attack. We would say, Oh my God, we're under attack. And they would shoot down the, the thing. So I think one of the connections that some people made, um, in the international relations kind of theory uh, uh, sort of space is this kind of shows that 
you know, actually our predisposed beliefs about any type of UFO kind of it runs in a negative direction, right? Not to say that the, the UFO would necessarily have like evil intent towards us, but certainly the gut reaction from the United States, uh, from a military perspective, was to shoot the damn thing down. You know, and that, so that, that's kind of interesting uh, in and of itself. The other piece of this, uh, the other reason aliens uh, kind of come into the discussion uh, in, in international relations theory is this sort of convoluted idea about what sovereignty uh, actually is and what sovereignty means. And one of the things that uh, Went and other people have pointed out is that for a very long time there has been, and it's a little less now than it used to be, but in the 20th century anyway, a sort of strong kind of like UFO taboo, right? Governments uh, didn't want to talk about UFOs. If you were t- if you, you sort of said like, we should study UFOs seriously, uh, you were like laughed at, you were kind of mocked. Um, despite the fact that if we were to discover like an alien civilization, it would be like the biggest discovery ever, right? So, and also you would think that if you're a country like the United States or China or Russia, you might have an interest in kind of protecting your people from a potential alien attack or whatever. So you'd want to research aliens. You want to research UFOs and all that kind of stuff. So despite that, there's been this taboo that basically does not allow you to talk about UFOs seriously. Um, and you're, you're, you know, just sort of like laughed at as being some crazy person with a tinfoil hat. And so the question is why? Like, why, why is it such a taboo uh, to talk about UFOs or to spend money researching them or, or whatever? And one of the arguments that Went and others have made is that this basically boils down to the idea of sovereignty being kind of a human construct, which is to say, you know, we have control over in the United States, kind of like what we do. We make decisions about how we're going to live our lives and are we going to invade this country, not invade this country, whatever. This is a human endeavor. If aliens were to show up tomorrow or today or whatever, presumably with far more sophisticated technology uh, than we have, then that idea of sovereignty kind of goes away because you learn immediately then that there's a higher power above humans and they're the aliens. And so therefore, your sovereignty actually doesn't matter at all. It's the aliens that are determining what's going to happen because they have the superior you know, power and technology and stuff like that. So sovereignty itself as being a human construct is threatened by the existence of aliens. And so for that reason, he argues, there's this taboo against talking about UFOs because you want to keep sovereignty alive. And I sometimes talk to my students about this. I mean, it's, an, it's a very interesting thought experiment. Like, if aliens were to show up, uh, and we've seen this many times in movies, of course, but if they're aliens are to show up, like, what would the, the reaction be? Like, what would, would states, like, come together and create, like, an international institution and go through the United Nations? I think not. I think what would happen is complete chaos. Everybody would be doing their own thing. It'd be like the early days of COVID where people, like, you know, shutting down borders and this and that. And so from that perspective, it does kind of make you think, like, maybe sovereignty really is, you know, challenged by this idea of having a higher power, so to speak, show up uh, on Earth. So anyway, so those are, so those are two sort of uh, ways of thinking about UFOs and aliens in existing international relations theory. And this is, if you're like an IR theory geek like I am, uh, when, when stuff like this happens and you have like you know, shooting down UFOs, all of the, the, the sort of discourse around aliens and stuff like that all kind of comes flooding back. It's a discourse that normally doesn't get talked about in like everyday quotidian kind of international political life. And so when we do get to talk about it and think about it and have Twitter threads about it, I mean, if you go on Twitter and Google, uh, not Google, that's a different platform. If you go on Twitter and search for aliens, UFOs, went, you get into all these like old discussions that we've had like, you know, several years ago. And it's so like nice to kind of like be reliving that uh, as we're shooting these things out of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like 20 minutes on uh, UFOs, international relations theory. 
I'm sure we lost. Spotify might actually ban us for that like little <laughs> diatribe that I just went on. They might yeah. say we made a terrible mistake accepting this podcast. We're going to be demonetized. The whole thing's going to be a disaster. But look, that's the IR theory uh, side of aliens. All right, let me take us back to the the real world here, the earthly okay. concerns we have. That's fair. Um, we talked in the last pod about what this all said about risk reduction between China and the United States is the ability of the U.S. military to call up some counterpart in the Chinese military and like say, hey, what's up with this balloon in order to avoid escalating a situation that didn't need to be escalated. And I think you made the point that this whole thing doesn't bode well for the ability of China and the United States to communicate and to de-escalate when necessary, because you would think that we would be able to reach someone on the phone and say, hey, what's going on with this balloon? And China could say, oh, it's off course. Don't worry about it or, or whatever. We could de-escalate the situation. So it turns out since then, we've had some news come in that the Biden administration actually did attempt uh, to communicate with China about the balloon before it was transiting the United States or as it was starting to transit the United States. And uh, whoever they were able to get on the phone in China um, said they would, uh, they will get back to you on that and never got back to them on that. And then after the balloon was shot down, senior U S military officials reached out to, to Chinese officials to try to deconflict after that. And the call was refused. The grounds that the United States had done damaged the relations between these countries with the, with their actions. Right. So the whole idea of like a hotline, and we've talked about this on this podcast in the past is that, uh, you need that hotline to exist in times of tension, but it's also something that's very easy for countries to kind of try to revoke, to signal how upset they are with the other side. So hotlines are really fraught because, sure, China refused the call, right? Because this is a way for them to send a signal to the United States about how pissed they were that we shot down their spy balloon. And But this is exactly the time we need them to be taking the call. And so, you know, it kind of points out how, you know, of questionable utility there are in these kinds of risk reduction mechanisms. What do you think about this, Marcus? Well, yeah, it, it's just so frustrating because I think, you know, you, you have this mode of communication that can, if you choose to, uh, remain private, right? So we talked last time, we, we touched on it earlier, like there's all kinds of domestic politics, you know, presumably for both sides and this type of thing, right? Because Biden's getting criticized, G probably is under pressure, et cetera. But you have this private line where you can call up the other side and just say, hey, General to general, top level general, so one another, like, look, you know, what's going on? Like, we don't have to talk about this publicly, but we need, to, we need to figure out what's going on. And so I just find it incredibly sort of irresponsible when the hotline exists and it won't be used as a way to, quote, unquote, send a signal, right? It's like, what, what, I get the idea of signal sending, and that's important. But you can also, you know, the other way you can send a signal is you pick up the phone and you say, we're actually really upset by this. And here are the reasons why we're upset. And that the balloon was for weather purposes or whatever their argument's going to be. But at least have that conversation. That You can also send a signal that way. And so I just worry that what if we're in a situation where that hotline does need to be picked up? You know, there's plenty of examples. We've talked about them on this show before of, of near misses, of mistakes, of misperception. All these types of things, you know, happen fairly routinely. Um, and if you don't have a way to sort of either deconflict the situation or at least explain what's going on, so both sides are on the same page, then you're in really dangerous uh, territory. So it's not it, what, what saddens me is not the fact that they didn't pick up the phone in this particular instance about the balloon, but it worries me that if they're not going to pick up the phone in future instances. And by the way, when I say they, it's the same thing with the United States. If China's trying to call the United States and we're not picking up, like the United States should be picking up too, right? Th th be able to have that communication level. 
in a, in a crisis or in, a, in order to prevent a crisis seems like really important to me. And it's, it's very depressing to learn that they're not using the hotline in a, in a productive manner. But we did maintain one avenue of communication because the Secretary of State did meet with his Chinese counterpart. Um, and we, we talked about this last time because while the balloon was going over the United States, uh, Secretary Blinken was scheduled to, to visit China and meet with folks and canceled that visit. And I, I kind of opined that I thought this was more about domestic politics than it was about any kind of international signal. And I mm. predicted that we'd soon see that meeting. And sure enough, mm. um, that meeting has happened. And China used it to, you know, yell at the United States about the balloon situation, yeah. which is absolutely fine. Right? Is. Yeah, yeah, like absolutely. That, that's exactly. the whole point of these meetings. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, so I think that, you know, nature is healing in this way, right? Like, like it, Blinken, they postponed it a couple of weeks or whatever, and not enough a week, not enough to, to make a dent in relations. And I think everyone recognizes how important these kinds of communications are. Um, and so the, that they were able to pull it together sufficiently to make that meeting happen um, so that China could yell at Blinken and Blinken could yell at, at their, his Chinese counterpart, I think, um, <laughs> right. is, is a good thing. It's a good thing all around. Absolutely. I mean, I, sometimes um, students especially are kind of under the false impression that diplomacy kind of implies this like rosy, you know, like let's get together and shake hands and hug and have meals together. That, and that certainly happens. That's part of it. But diplomacy is also premised on the notion of the sharing of grievances and sharing of problems and you talk it out, you know, and it's not like Blanket and his counterpart are going to be able to like solve the issue there. But if the, if the point is for the Chinese uh, uh, government to convey publicly to the United States and everybody else, how upset they are by this, that's exactly what diplomacy is for. Now, the problem with the hotline, it seems to me is like that gives them the ability to do it privately. So that should be used, but there's also this public facing kind of stuff that, that occurs too. And that's, and that's great. I just wish they were doing it both. I wish they were doing the kind of the private stuff where maybe they're a little bit more free to say what they really think and the public stuff, which is, you know, signaling of its own own as well. I, I think both are, are great. And I agree with you. Nature is healing itself when you have these, these meetings. Absolutely. This meeting was a chance for the U S to issue a warning to China about supplying weapons, conventional weapons, to Russia uh, as part of Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. We talked about this last time, too, in the context of just worsening relations between the U.S. and China over the last decade or so, and how, you know, China's thrown its uh, hat in the in the Russia ring, I guess, this is a bad analogy. Like, like, China has kind of shown that it wants to be a supporter of Russia in this conflict, and there apparently is some information available to U.S. officials that China is at least seriously considering or maybe intends to provide some conventional weapons to Russia, which would be bad from the perspective of the U.S. and NATO and Ukraine. And I think it makes sense for the U.S. to try to make clear to China in advance that this would lead to further worsening of relations. Not that I think that that will have much of an effect on Chinese decision making. So, okay, let's, let's break this down a little bit, because I, I find this very confusing. If you're China, and you're looking at the current state of affairs in Ukraine, uh, which, which are not good, um, in the sense that Russia, you know, is, has been losing, and it's, we're a year into the war, and, and things have not, you know, gone well for, for Russia, why would Xi Jinping be considering doubling down on his support for Russia? Like, what... what why would he give weapons to, to Russia? And what, what is the, the calculus there? I think China sees Russia 
as a semi-ally in in its mm-hmm. you know overall outlook on the global security situation that it wants to take a position opposing the United States, making life more difficult for the United States and its allies. And this is one way to do it. If China can cheaply cause a problem for the West, I think it's willing to to participate in that. And it's not clear that the U.S. can make this expensive enough for China that it would want to forego it. Apparently, this came up in the meeting that Blinken had with his Chinese counterpart um, as a as a strong warning from the United States. You know, don't do this. There had been talk of Chinese supply to Russia kind of at the beginning of the war that China was a potential military supplier to Russia, which you know is is kind of depleting all of its ability to supply its military. Right. So anything Russia can produce is going to the war and being used up. So so Russia is in a position where it does need to procure military equipment, supplies. And so it's looking to everyone who'd be willing to sell to it. And it's not a very long list. So we have Iranian drones, um, you know, flying in, in Ukraine, and maybe we have Chinese supply. These are the, the handful of countries that, that are willing to, to support Russia in this conflict. Um, and I, I think it's clear that Russia will pay uh, for, for this. So, you know, this was something that was talked about at the beginning of the conflict. And I think China took kind of a wait and see attitude on really supplying Russia in this war to see whether how things played out. Is this going to be a quick war and we don't have to take a side and um, we can kind of get the benefit of of being in the middle here. But, you know, as the war kind of grinds on, uh, it seems like maybe China's in a position to or is is nearing a decision on whether to actually kind of stop this moratorium and 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 supply Russia. And the, the intelligence apparently on this is that China hasn't yet made a, a final decision. So maybe the United States thought that this was a chance to maybe influence what they were going to what they were ultimately going to decide. Yeah. Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, I guess one way of thinking about it is China might be thinking we're a year in. It's not this is going to be a long war. Um, and so from that perspective, if you think there's a chance that sort of U.S. Uh, support for Ukraine is going to decrease over time, and I think a lot of people, a lot of analysts will look at it and say that's there's a, there's a good probability that that happens um, due to domestic politics in the United States, upcoming election in 2024, you never really know what's going to happen. Um, and you, you couple that with what you said, which is this idea of kind of being a thorn in the side of, of the U.S. There's this idea in international relations called um, like soft balancing, right? So like, you know, hard balancing is like we're going to you know build up our arms and the nuclear race, blah, blah. Soft balancing is kind of like you just want to – you want to be a pain in the ass. You know what I mean? You want to do things that make it costly for your opponent without really going to that, you know, sort of confrontational kind of stage. This might be one of those those times where China says like we can make things a little bit difficult for the United States who we're not getting along with particularly well at the moment. And at the same time, they might be thinking, you know, making a deal with the U.S. to not do this, there doesn't seem to be a lot of upside there either for us, right? Because we, we're in this bad situation, tensions are rising. Like, are we really going to be in a position to create a deal with the U.S. not to provide these these weapons? So it's it's very complicated, but I think the calculus for China is, is, is fascinating. I do think there's also, just from a psychological perspective, um, China, if, if Russia's losing the, the war, in a sense, China's losing as well, because China has backed Russia for a very long time, you know? And so it's kind of like one of these things, as you pointed out, they're kind of semi-allies. They've, they've, there's a lot of sunk costs in, in sort of, you know, for China in propping up uh, uh, the Russian state and, and Putin. 
they don't want to see Russia lose. So I think they're in this situation where it's kind of like they don't really want to get involved that much. They kind of want to do, you know, maybe a little bit of the soft balancing stuff. And they've invested a lot. And so they really don't want to see Russia lose either. So they're, it, it's tricky for China. And from the U.S. perspective, it's not entirely clear what levers the United States has to pull here to persuade China not to get yeah. more deeply involved in, in supplying Russia. And I mean, one thing that could happen, and I would anticipate if China makes an announcement, I think, I think um, Xi is going to is going to Moscow to meet with Putin. I think there's like a, a state visit coming up. So if one of the announcements coming out of that is that China is going to be supplying um, military equipment to, to Russia, then I, I would expect the U.S. to respond with some kind of sanctions package. But it, it's sanctions against China are very tricky because, uh, you know, China is obviously an important global supplier. Um, and so it's it's hard to find sanctions that would have any kind of a real effect without also being very damaging for, for U.S., uh, economic interests. Right. And at, at the same point, like if we, if that was a lever that we could use, like the, we have sanctioned China in the past over uh, stuff with Russia, the, the satellite thing that they were doing, the imagery. So, but if, if those sanctions are not hurting that much, right? Like one of the things you might say is like, okay, well, don't give these weapons to, to Russia in exchange. We're going to get rid of these sanctions or whatever. Well, you know, China is not all that worried about the sanctions and they're not worried about more sanctions then you're right. Or from an economic perspective, we don't have a lot of, of leverage over them. Right. I mean, I think, you know, you could imagine targeted sanctions on individuals that would have no real economic consequences, but would annoy those individuals. And, and yeah. in some, there's some thought that maybe that factors into folks' calculation. But yeah, I, I think in general, there's not a lot the U.S. can can do here, except for, you know, try to make the case that this isn't in China's long-term interest. The one area where China has been on board with kind of the Western line on Russia is in nuclear risk reduction. So when we were in the period of the war where Putin were, was making kind of more explicit nuclear threats, China was quick to join the rest of the world in saying this is irresponsible and you should stop. So this right. is actually one area where there is a common common interest and a common view that the the nuclear saber rattling is is a bad idea. Um, and China has been kind of vocal about that. So it's not as if there's no common ground on, on Russia. It's just it's, you know, very limited spaces where, where China's working with the West. OK, other stuff has happened. It hasn't been all balloons all the time, um, although it sometimes seems like it. We're out of balloon corner now. Do we have do we have balloon corner outro music? We don't. I could play the carnival music in reverse. Yes. Like a Beatles album. Have you the know? AI, yeah, have the AI come up with like the reversed version of, of that. But but stuff is happening. So there was a big dramatic visit by President Biden to Kiev on President's Day, uh, kind of around the first anniversary of, of the invasion. Biden and Zelensky go outside in Kiev wandering around while the air raid sirens are going off. <laughs> it was it was so bizarre. It was so bizarre. And Biden gave a, a speech kind of about U.S. support for Ukraine and how it will endure. There are some interesting stories about how this was stage managed and how he kind of secretly was able to get to Ukraine on this 10 hour train ride. And, you know, all those kind of back yes. backroom stories are kind of fun, fun to look at. Uh, but I think, you know, the truth of it is that Biden was kind of the last Western leader who had not made the pilgrimage to, to Ukraine. And so it was kind of important as a show of support for him for him to do so. But, mm -hmm. you know, Marcus, this was this was some face to face diplomacy happening, or at least yeah. it was a you know, showing up in a place to send a signal 
And my usual line on this is like, nah, could that have been an email, right? <laughs> like, did the, did the, could the meeting have been an email? And, and so I want to hear you tell me. It's tough to send this email. Though. What, I mean, what, do we, what, what is the benefit for, for the United States, for Ukraine, for, the, for NATO of, of Biden actually getting on a train yeah. and making this trip? Yeah. So I, I, this is all good stuff. So first of all, uh, we should point out Zelensky has been sort of begging for this trip to happen evidently for months, right? Like he's, and you, you said like other, you know, the, the Macron has gone, like other, other leaders have gone to Kiev and, and um, Biden, you know, it's, it's harder for him to get there. You know, there's more, more pressure on that trip for than some of the other leaders, but th- this is one of the things that people have been wanting to happen. And I think the, the trip does a couple different things. I think just at the, the basic level, the sort of visuals of it, um, are important in and, of them, in and of itself, right? So, like, the, the idea of this high-level uh, meeting where you're walking around with the, the sirens blasting, and it's such a show of, of support and solidarity, right? Anybody who looks at Biden realizes this is a, a gentleman who's, who's definitely older. This is a trip that I'm sure was not easy for him to, to do. There are parallels uh, in U.S. history. When, when FDR uh, traveled to the Yalta summit. It was very similar, actually. Like, it was, you know, take tra- planes, trains, automobiles to get there. It took forever. He got sick. You know, he was not feeling well. He got sick. And so that sort of, like, momentous uh, journey, I think, has a, has some gravitas to it because you're like, you, this guy didn't get on the subway and go three stops in 15 minutes. Like, he actually put, you know, not, not his life on the line, but you could look at it that way, right? Because you're, you're going into basically uh, a war zone. But he went into a, a situation that was costly for him to, to do this. And it takes time. It takes energy. Um, and at an older age, it, that all gets you know sort of multiplied. So I think just from the the visit itself, if you take nothing else from it, the fact that he was there, the visuals of it, I think um, make a lot of sense. The other thing, though, I was struck by not so much the visit to to Kiev, which I think was important, but the the speeches that he gave. So the one in Warsaw, um, you know, was so I thought it's just so strong. And it had parallels to another moment in, in U.S. Uh, Russian slash Soviet history, which was, you know, when Reagan goes to and at the, the Brandenburg Gate, you know, and says, Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I'm not saying Biden gave a tear down this wall speech, but it came close. I have a, I have a quote here um, from the speech. Right. It's simple. If Russia stopped invading Ukraine, it would end the war. If Ukraine stopped defending itself against Russia, it would be the end of Ukraine. That's pretty strong stuff. I mean, he's basically saying, you know, to, to Putin, you have to end this thing. Like, stop invading Ukraine. And so there was a moment that seemed very similar to sort of, you know, tear down this wall. So I, I, I liked it from that perspective as well. Now, every analyst uh, worth their salt will say it's all fine and good for Biden to, to go and do this. But Ukraine is also desperately uh, in desire of more weapons, better weapons, bigger weapons, you know, more sophisticated weapons. They've been asking for these for a very long time. And I think one of the things that this war has shown us is that the United States and NATO countries more generally, over time, have gotten a little bit more comfortable with the idea of giving Ukraine more and more uh, in terms of, of weaponry, right? At the beginning of this conflict, everybody was very afraid of nuclear escalation. Everybody was afraid that, you know, if we if we put troops on the ground, certainly that would, you know, make a, a, a nuclear crisis. If we gave weapons to, to Ukraine directly, that would create this nuclear crisis. And we've sort of been in the situation where we're kind of like, it's like touching like something really hot, like it's touching the sun or something. You touch it, you like back off real quick and then see what happens. And you're like, oh, okay, nothing really bad happened. So we're going to do a little bit more and a little bit more. And so I think with the visit, 
And the fact that the United States and, and NATO countries, including Germany, have been more comfortable giving, giving weapons, I think it's an indication of a trend of, of not just solidarity, but an indication that we might be in a, in a situation where we're going to see more in terms of, of weaponry given to Ukraine in, in fighting uh, Russia. There's still the, the threat, of course, that that will lead to some type of nuclear uh, crisis and that Putin the, the, still has the option open of using a tactical nuclear weapon, all the stuff we've talked about before in this podcast. And if you look at the Putin speech that was made sort of in, in response to Biden's visit and all that, he was pretty strong himself. And he, he you know, is, is pulling out of the SALT Treaty and all that kind of stuff. So he has his own sort of calculus and his own way of projecting uh, strength and, and solidarity in the sort of Russian side. But I do kind of see this as an indication that maybe we're to, not just the game changer of this conflict, but in a position to, to very shortly see the United States and NATO maybe beef up from a weapons perspective what they're giving to Ukraine. Yeah, I don't, I don't really see it that way. I, I mean, so one of the deliverables from this visit was Biden's announcement of more support for Ukraine. But to my eyes, the support is kind of the same stuff that we've been doing and isn't qualitatively different. And I think the U.S. has ha taken a fairly consistent line over the last few months. We're going to offer this sort of thing, but not that sort of thing. And by that sort of thing, I mean weapons that could allow Ukraine an ability to strike into Russian territory effectively, um, that we see those kinds of weapons as escalatory uh, and raise the risk that this conflict escalates beyond beyond Ukraine. And, and so we've been reluctant to provide that kind of weaponry. Tanks are a different story. Mm -hmm. And um, there have been a lot of talk about tanks. And, you know, you mentioned maybe Germany's becoming more comfortable with it. I don't think they're becoming more comfortable at all. I think it's just been pressure on them to to cave and allow wow. countries to export these these uh, these tanks. So um, I think it's less about like any kind of change in the comfort level and more like, you know, this continued pressure by supporters of Ukraine who want Ukraine to have um, all the all the military supplies that it, it needs to, to keep the, the stuff coming from a military analysis perspective. And we may have talked about this in the past, but I don't think that this is uh, any kind of game changer. But I think it's really important. Right. It's important for. The, the United States and NATO to continue to support Ukraine, not so much because that that equipment can be immediately put to use on the battlefield. But given that this war has kind of settled into a little bit of a long term stalemate kind of thing, um, mm -hmm. it allows Ukraine the comfort of knowing that it has supplies coming so it can be more willing to risk the supplies that it currently has and the armaments it currently has. So the idea of these tanks, I think, from Ukraine's perspective is more to backfill its losses that it's likely to sustain in the campaigns of this spring rather than to be used in the campaigns of this spring, if, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important. It's, it's, it's no doubt important, and it's important both for the actual military support it provides and for the political signal that it that it sends to Russia uh, and to Ukraine that that the West is there to con is going to continue to support it. Now, I think in the back rooms alongside these announcements, we have some sense that there is messaging from the United States that Ukraine might want to act sooner rather than later to gain some territory here because it's not clear with a Republican House in Congress that we will continue to be able to provide 
uh, the kind of support that we provided up to this point. And so we saw some stories about the U.S. kind of sending this message in back channels that uh, now's the time, right? That mm-hmm. that uh, if they can show some progress now, that would be good politically. But of course, we don't want politics to dictate military strategy. And so there's a kind of fine line to be to be drawn here. I liked the speeches, too. I enjoyed the visuals, too, of this of this visit. What does Biden get? What do we get from this kind of a thing that we wouldn't have gotten from a Zoom call? What break it, break it down for me. I mean, but besides the visuals, which are great, but like, do those visuals have any real impact on anyone's views of this conflict? Oh yeah. I mean, I think for, you know, I was, I was reading some, um, sort of commentary for, from people in, in Ukraine and the level at which they were sort of delighted to see Biden, like when it, when it first kind of word was getting out that Biden like might be coming. And Biden might be like actually like you know uh, in our in our city and like walking the streets. There was like my I wasn't there, but my sense is that there was like a palpable kind of excitement, right? And I think that kind of stuff is important because it's it's if you're in a long war, anything you can do to to keep people resolved and keep your your populace you know ready to fight and wanting to fight and not not give in and understand that like the West is with them. I think that's all important. Now, it might be important symbolically um, or ideationally or emotionally, but I think all of that, all of that matters. And I think that Putin, my guess is if I was, if I was Putin, I wouldn't be happy to see the Biden trip, right? I don't think he liked that. And I don't think he, I don't think he was in a position uh, with the little speech that he made in, in response to really do something as sort of monumental uh, and it's powerful dramatic. as Biden. Yeah. It, it's dramatic, exactly. Yeah. And so I think if you're looking at this as a, a strategic interaction between Putin and, and Biden. Biden won this one, you know? And uh, sure, it's it's going to be hard to draw any sort of causal arrow from this visit to any kind of kind of outcome. I, I totally agree with that. But I, I do think that having um, the symbolic, you know, visit, especially when it's as costly as, as uh, it was, for the reasons I talked about a second ago, I think that that is relevant. I think it does send a strong signal to Ukrainians, uh, to NATO countries, and also to Putin himself. And it might also send a signal to China, too, which is interesting to link it back to our, our previous conversation. If it's true that the U.S. is telling Ukraine through back channels, you need to do something now because we don't know about what's going to happen in you know, the House and all that kind of stuff down the road domestically. Well, China might also understand that same logic and think this is the time to then provide weapons to Russia, prevent that thing from happening. Right. So it might be that China is, is you know, they're part of their calculus is also. You know, we we see the timing situation here with the U.S. domestic you know system, um, and that could be one explanation for why they might be flirting with the idea of providing more uh, weapons to to Russia as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, I, I think I agree with you that that this was better than a Zoom call um, for for, <laughs> for for a couple well, of the same reasons. Like, certainly better than a tweet, right? Yeah, I mean, that's well, what Trump would have done, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like the area you identified. As the biggest factor, here, I think, is is Ukrainian morale, um, which is really important. Right. I mean, here's a country that um, has sacrificed quite a lot in this war is doing all the fighting. Yes, there's there's Western support, but the, the lives on the line are, are almost exclusively Ukrainian lives. Um, and so it's important to, to have this kind of show of support. And it, it, I think it helps the overall morale. I think it helps Zelensky do his job. Um, and And so if we can provide that kind of intangible aid to uh to our ally here then i think we should absolutely especially since Zelensky 
was asking for it. Like my yeah. my feeling is, you're supporting this this uh, country in a war, and the leader is is asking you to do something. You do it. You know, he wants it. If, if for no other reason that he's asking you, like maybe personally to 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 come help him help him out domestically by making this trip, I think that's that's reason enough to make the trip. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's not even like uh, uh, helping him domestically politically. It's like helping him continue to maintain Ukrainian morale in the face yeah. of this grinding conflict that is killing a lot of people. Um, exactly. And, you know, subjecting civilians to airstrikes this is a tough environment um, to be trying to keep your country motivated. And if, if a visit from from Joe can help with you, with that, I think obviously we should we should do it. It's easy for me to say it wasn't like the middle of the night, my time out there with air raid sirens going on trying to make a speech. So I'm I'm, right. I'm impressed. I would have been out for the count. Like, there's no way I could have pulled this off. So I just I, I, I totally agree. Like, wasn't it to me? And maybe it's because in the U.S. domestic political system, we're having all these discussions, you know, like Nikki Haley is, is out saying, you know, old people shouldn't run for president anymore and this and that. Everybody's talking about how Biden's too old and this and that. And what you saw were these images of a very strong U.S. president going and giving a very strong speech under very difficult conditions, you know. And so I just I, I looked at that. I said, wow, you know, this is this is this is an important uh, visit. And optically, I think it was just just magnificent. I will say this, though, Professor Kaplow, wouldn't it be nice if we had a universal data set of head of state diplomatic visits that occur and, and sub-level ones as well? So secretary of state and maybe top level generals and things like that, that we could look at this, these types of situations in, in the aggregate and correlate visits with what's going on in the world. Because it seems to me on this podcast, what often happens is uh, a visit will happen. You'll say, Professor Holmes, you study interpersonal diplomacy. Uh, what is the effect of this visit on blah, 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 right? And I always have the same exact answer. It's hard to draw a causal arrow from, the, from any one visit to any type of outcome. So it seems to me the way forward would be a data set that has all of the interpersonal visits and everything else you can think of going on in the world with respect to conflict and peace and trade and, and all the rest of it. That way we could, we could, you know, do some statistical modeling to see what causal effect, if any, these head of state visits actually, actually have. Wouldn't that make for a very interesting project? My favorite times in this podcast are when you advocate for statistical modeling. That just, that just makes me happy. <laughs> this does sound vaguely familiar and you should write this up and uh, we should we submit really should. some kind of a grant really application should. for this. I have very good ideas. I just never act on them. Yeah, this does sound, this sounds like, yeah, this sounds like something we may have discussed in the past. Um, I, I wanted to add one other way in which the Biden visit might matter kind of writ large. And you, you kind of alluded to this, but the, the, the difficulty of this trip maybe increases the level of audience costs associated with this visit. So this is something that my class, international security class, is talking about right now, uh, audience costs. And the idea of an audience cost is that usually when we say stuff in international relations, it's just cheap talk, right? It's, it's, not, uh, it's not something anyone really needs to take seriously because, uh, you know, people bluff, people say stuff, and, you know, why should we care when, when leaders say things? One way that leaders can make their statements, their threats, their promises more credible is by making them publicly and staking their reputation on them in some way. And the idea there is that Biden wouldn't lay his reputation on the line saying how much he supports Ukraine if he intended to go back on that, right? If he intended to go back to America and say, okay, 
the, we're turning the spigot off, no more support, because that would damage him politically. It would damage him in the eyes of international leaders or whoever the audience is for this audience cost. So by saying it publicly, he makes it a costly signal, which is a kind of term of art in, in political science and economics, and we can take it seriously. And so the difficulty of this trip is one way of saying, hey, like this is something that Biden personally is invested in, personally cares a lot about, the administration cares a lot about. And that means that he's likely to do what he can to continue that support into the future because this is something that he staked his reputation on in a very public way. And he went to Kiev and he made this speech saying the U.S. supports you and we will be there for as long as you're fighting this fight. And and so making that kind of a very strong public statement means that, you know, it's very unlikely that he's going to change his view. Now, he may be forced to change his view because Congress won't appropriate money, right? And that's a, a different issue. But it's a way of kind of making clear to, to God and everyone that uh, this is something that the United States is going to continue to to um, to pursue. And in case there was any doubt about U.S. resolve to continue this kind of limited support. It's not like U.S. troops are out there fighting, right? So it's it's a limited form of support. <laughs> right. But but we, we are resolved to continue supplying uh, Ukraine um, for the duration of this conflict. And so that's a message. It's an important message to send on occasion. It's a message both to Putin and to our allies that, like, this is something we still feel strongly about. So Germany, you know, get over it. Get over the whole tank thing because we're going to continue pressuring you to provide support to Ukraine as this, as this war continues. I, I agree with that. I mean, as as audience costs are incredibly complicated, as 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 we all know, and so like it's unclear whether the, these things actually exist. Or, and lots of people debate this back and forth. It's kind of like the democratic piece. Like everybody's got a theory on on audience costs. But I think I think that's right in the sense that if if nothing else, Biden staked you know sort of a claim about his personal kind of resolve in this situation. Now that doesn't mean that the United States will be able to deliver um, in the foreseeable future if he if he like you know, loses domestic uh, constituents. But, you know, it, it does sort of say I'm, I'm trying to signal in very strong terms what my own personal uh, resolve is. The other thing, just to, to put a bow on this, I think domestically as well, the, the domestic politics angle here for Biden, this is also an important trip. Because yeah. I, I think that, you know, at a time when people are starting to question U.S. support for Ukraine, you start to see like all this money that we're sending and, and, you know, making the situation worse. And maybe we don't, shouldn't be supporting Ukraine at all. Like this whole kind of like Tucker Carlson wing of the Republican kind of side of things have been making these arguments for some time. It's really hard to like sort of look at what Biden was doing and, and criticize him for, for that speech, I think. And so I think even domestically, if you look at this from a U.S. politics perspective, uh, it, was a, it was a great trip for him. I feel like we 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 were doing the sort of like catching up part, and then we were going to get to like new, new new stuff. But we've been doing this for over an hour, and there's so much to talk about. So I yeah, think you're right. I think well, we but also, I mean, we did the, the Biden visit was new stuff. That's 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 true. That's, that's true. New, that's new content. That's fair. But that's let's fair. let's uh, tease a topic for next time. Just like this is Last of Us, right? Um, so a thirty second teaser. A thirty second teaser. Marcus, the other very exciting thing that happened exciting i don't know if exciting is the right word the other thing that happened last week was that russia suspended its participation in the new start treaty which is the kind of last remaining arms control treaty between the united states and, and russia 
um, that limits the number of nuclear weapons that we have deployed and that Russia has deployed. It provides for information sharing. It provides for risk reduction and is, you know, one of the few remaining things that, that do this job. And Russia said, we're going to suspend it because the, it's a bad atmosphere right now with the United States. Um, so I think this merits some discussion. Why would anyone want to suspend a treaty like this that is clearly in everybody's best interest? Um, and it's something we should talk about next time. I'm going to give you a little preview of what I think about this. Right. And what I think is that Putin has this sort of very strange tendency. Um, and I, I think prospect theory kind of explains some of it, where when things are, were, are going poorly for him, he really sort of doubles down on the, the, the sort of items that are going to be, he thinks will be perceived as particularly, you know, sort of confrontational with respect to the West, right? So I, I see this as things are not working out for Putin in the war. He didn't like what Biden was doing in Kiev. He needed to, send, he needed to do something sort of retaliatory, confrontational, and he doubled down by making this, this announcement. But I will get into that full argument next time. Wonderful. Thanks, everyone, for, for joining us this week. If you'd like to... Give us some feedback. Tell Professor Holmes where he was wrong about something. Suggest a topic for uh, the next episode of Cheap Talk. Please go to speakpipe.com slash cheap talk or, and this is new, send us an email at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com. Oh, wow. We have a Gmail account now? <laughs> I was too cheap to register a domain. so we I'm old enough to remember when you needed like an invite. To get a That's Gmail right. account. And so it's still still kind of of like fancy to, to have a new Gmail account. That is that is great. The other thing I'll say is if the, for the listeners, if you if you want, would like to see a live stream version, Professor Kaplow uh, and myself cook, reach out to HelloFresh and say, you know, this is a great podcast that you might want to want to sponsor. I think it would be really fun to uh, uh, cook with with my co-host here. Yeah, no, that, that would be great. I, I hope that all of our listeners who are in. Uh, the marketing departments of large businesses will will think of us kindly. Um, and with that, uh, thank you, Marcus. See this. See you next time. See you next time. You wanted me to buy like a, a proper microphone uh, for recording podcasts because we're professionals and it's about time that I have some professional equipment and I don't have that equipment and, and you even encouraged me to get some. Around the same time, uh, I was invited to uh, do a live stream of of me running on my treadmill, uh, live streamed with like other people. So in this particular instance, a, a very nice woman from Chicago, uh, and we were going to do a run together. Uh, she would be on her treadmill in her house. I'd be on my treadmill in my house. And the, the problem with that is that treadmills are kind of noisy. So for the live stream purposes, you kind of need to have like a headset with a mic like right next to your, your face. So I was left with this conundrum. I didn't want to buy two microphones. That seems silly. So I thought, why don't I buy a headset with a microphone for running purposes and then try it out on the Cheap Talk podcast and see if it, if it works, see if the, the sound is better than what I'm normally using, which is no microphone at all. Or I should say the microphone that's built into my iMac. So we'll, this will be a good test run. As you go and like, put this podcast together, listen to my audio, and tell me, do I sound better? Do I sound worse? And then the listeners can also chime in. Do I, does this microphone make me sound uh, worse than before or better or no difference whatsoever? So I'm actually hearing uh, a lot of clipping and you're cutting out. Uh-oh. Are uh -oh. you, so have you tried this? Have you tried recording from this mic? No. I mean, I did for the live stream. Okay. So you did it the and same that way? It go well. 
You, you yeah. Did... So this is Bluetooth. I just connected it to the uh, the Mac. Okay. Uh, it has to be Bluetooth. I can't run with a cord. No, I'm not saying you should run with a cord. <laughs> no, nobody's saying that. That's not. <laughs> I'm missing the point. Uh, so yeah. you decided so saying... to go with a like a. <laughs> <laughs> not only, not only that, not only that, not only that. I bought this using Uber Eats. Uh, because they have like groceries and convenience stores, because I needed it like right away, so I got this on Uber Eats, uh, the only microphone I could find attached to a headset. Because they sold it at Walgreens, that's like, <laughs> <laughs> which is where I, I all my consumer electronic needs are met. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, you could get at Walgreens, you can get this, and you can get like a like USB like one gigabyte uh uh like storage <laughs> drive, and that's basically it. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I'm just I gonna say like this, I, I hope I take this off. Well, I hope that the audio that's being recorded locally is somehow like way better than what I'm hearing. Okay, because well, you sound noticeably do, worse than you do in a I normal sound Zoom call. Worse. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's disappointing. So maybe I should take this off, cut out the Bluetooth connection, and then use my normal kind of headset without the microphone. Yeah, but I appreciate that you're. You've got us in your thoughts. <laughs>